listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, the ushers are coming forward with Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in your hand today, love for you to have one. If you forgot your Bible at home, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take that Bible today, and you keep that Bible if you don't have one, and that is uh, everyone, Word of God. You need a copy of the Word of God, and if the print's too small, if it's uh, a little difficult for you to be able to read that, invest the money. We invest in so many things, cell phone packages, different things. For one month of a cell phone package, you can buy yourself a very nice version, a study Bible uh, of the Word of God. Encourage you to invest in that. Parents, when it comes to Christmas gifts for your kids, before they have the latest and greatest, give them the best. Give them the Word of God. And the Word of God is is alive. And so we're going to look at the living Word. I I just, I love the Word of God. I was telling Nate, we are coming coming here this morning, and uh, just saying, I love the Word of God. It is just, like, I could seriously, like, the stuff that unraveled and covered from this package here in Scripture today, uh, we could, like, seriously, I had to just delete, 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 and you say, well, you preach long enough already. I know, but there's just so much, and, and there's just so much truth and so many things that can change our lives, and this passage is just so rich and so amazing. I always love it when early in the week, usually Monday, I start looking at the passage for the following week, and I start thinking, how in the world? am I going to be able to get a sermon out of this? You know, and, and it's amazing just the truths. It's like digging for gold and, and as you keep digging, you keep at it, you find these truths, these realities that are just phenomenal. And, and so we're going to study God's word together here in Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts, 28 chapters covering a period of about 30 years. So we're getting snapshots of different things that are taking place. And, and the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, which was an outpost of the Roman Empire. That's where the, Pente- where the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. 30 years later, it finishes in Rome, which is the heart and the hub of the greatest empire on the earth at that time. It was the Apostle Paul's dream. It was his plan, his desire to get the gospel to Rome. Do whatever it takes. I want to get the gospel to Rome. He did eventually make it there. The road to Rome for him, though, didn't go anything like he had planned. And yet he got to Rome. And for all of us, the road of life, we can plan plan out our ways. We can plot out, uh, you know, our, our plans and our dreams and different things. But none of you, I can tell you right now, none of you five years ago, because I wasn't even at this point, five years ago ever thought you'd be attending church at a church plant in a movie theater in Kelowna. Right? Like, you just don't foresee that kind of a thing. But God moves and, and God does his work. And, and, and I mean, five years ago, most of us never even heard of Harvest Bible Chapel before. I certainly hadn't. And, and it's amazing the way that God's plan continues on. We, we, we chart out our plans for life, but God is the one that leads and guides and he makes things happen. And oftentimes, it ends up a lot different, but God is good. And we look and say, wow. He is so faithful. 
And he is faithful. And today we're going to see how God grows a dynamic church in a very unlikely place using some very unlikely people. And we're going to see how this church became not only just a church that just kind of had the spotlight on them and just enjoyed the Shekinah glory of God for the rest of their lives. But they were a church that moved out. They became a sending base. They became a powerful and a mighty church. And God used an unlikely city and some very unlikely people for this. And I believe this gives us great hope today. And so in Acts 11, where we are today, the church is about 10 years old and much of the early life of the church um, up until last week, even as we looked and we've been looking at this map for the last number of weeks, we've been, been kind of showing it here. 95% of the church's activity had taken place in this region that you see here. And, and we've in recent weeks highlighted in Jerusalem and how it was in Lydda and Joppa. And last week, a Amazing. It goes into Caesarea. It goes into a Gentile home. And, and we just saw how, how that opened up new doors. And, and we see that in, in Acts 8, a little few chapters back, that Philip had gone to Samaria to preach the gospel. But that was, that was to, to Samaritans. They were half Jews, half Gentiles. But last week we see how the gospel penetrated up into Caesarea. And the first sermon, the first salvation, the first baptisms were directed uh, were directed and received to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And so that started opening up the door for the gospel. But now today we are going to see how that little area starts to expand. That area in the last map that, that we just showed you is in that little red circle there. And today we're going to see how the gospel expands to the next place, to Antioch. Uh, I think we have that. There we go. And eventually, where does, where does Paul want to get it by, by the end of Acts to Rome, way over in the top left corner. There's a nice little red, red bubble there dot for you to be able to see that. And so much of the activity took place just in that little region. But today we're going to see it making a, a, a gigantic leap forward and some amazing things that, that took place. But today we're going to see that God plants and grows healthy, mature churches with transformed people that can impact the world. That is the heart of God. That is his plan. That is his plan for us as his children to be disciples, to make disciples, to plant churches that can impact the world. And that is what we are called to. That is the mission that we are on. That is the mission that every church is supposed to be on. But somewhere in the midst of it, we lose our mission. We lose our focus. And so today we're getting back to the mission. That's what the book of Acts is all about. That God plants and grows healthy, mature churches with transformed people that can impact the world. Write that down because that is, should have some exclamation mark. Oh, and it has one. Add a couple more to it in your notes. That this is something, this is God's heart. And this is what he desires to do. And God is going to to do it today in this very unlikely place. And I believe in all my heart that God's word is alive and God's word speaks to, speaks to us today and that God can do the same here in this city, in this region, in Western Canada, in our nation and around the world. And God is doing it, but God also wants to use you to be a part of this. He wants to use me. He wants to use this church. But are we going to step up to it? Are we going to take these truths that we see here and allow God's word to transform us and to, to be enlisted in this most important, most vital work? And the first thing we, sees here, we see here in this passage is it begins in unlikely places with very, very unlikely people. 
verses 19 and 21. We see, uh, starting to read here at verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So now to understand just a little bit where we are here in in the middle part of, of Acts chapter 11, you have to, in order to understand this, you have to go back to Acts chapter 7. And you just may want to thumb back there and just take a look there and just to make sure that this is actually uh, happening as I'm telling you here. And so in order to understand it, we have to see that in Acts 7, that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus was wreaking havoc on the church. He was out to stamp out, to wipe out any disciples, any followers of Christianity. It wasn't called that then yet, but followers of the way. He was there rounding up men and women, dragging them out of their homes, publicly persecuting them, putting them on trial, and having them killed. This was the kind of havoc that he was wreaking and had total uh, approval to do that. This was a season of great persecution for the church in Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 7, Stephen, a layman in the church, he wasn't one of the apostles, he wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus, but he was a convert. He got, uh, the message of Jesus changed and transformed his life. He preaches this incredible sermon in front of the religious teachers and makes them very angry. They take him out of, ta- uh, uh, out of the city and they stone him to death. And he became the first Christian martyr. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you'll see that, that this persecution caused Jewish believers to scatter. The people in Jerusalem that were, were disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, they took off. The apostles stayed, but the people took off. They're like, honey, come on, we got to pack up. You wouldn't believe what they just did to Stephen. And Stephen is just like you. He's just like us. We better get out of here. Let, let's, let's roll out of town. Let's, let's pack up. We have some relatives in this area. We have some relatives in Antioch. We have, you know, where, we just got to get someplace safe and someplace where there's a promise and a hope of a new life. And so, so the, the believers start to, to spread out. And some of you might, might start thinking, well, I thought that, why are they running? Aren't you supposed to stand up for Jesus? Aren't you supposed to be ready to die for him? Well, yes, you are if they catch you. But if they don't catch you, you continue to go. Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, he says, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Spreading the gospel. Keep on going. Keep on moving. And that's what they did. They started to scatter out. And wherever they went, they talked about Jesus. And so we see here in Acts chapter 11 now, some of these believers went to Antioch. They told of Jesus. They talked about him, but only to the Jews. They went and started to share the word of God. They they took the Old Testament truths and teachings and they, they linked it up to show how Jesus was the Messiah and other Jewish people became believers as well. Now, Antioch, if we were to look on the map, you'll see there the little circle there where Jerusalem, Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea are. And now you see that, that uh, just straight north of Jerusalem, it's about 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Uh, and today, Antioch is where south-central Turkey is situated. It was a very large city, at least 500,000 people. And it was considered one of the three great cities of the world. There was, there was Antioch, which we're going to be looking at today, there was also Alexandria and there was Rome. Those were the three major cities. Now, Antioch was kind of a melting pot of cultures. And here's some pictures um, from from modern day uh, 
Antioch that you'll see, and you'll see some of the uncovered uh, artifacts that they have found. Antioch was this melting pot, pot, though, of cultures. There was Greeks, there was Romans, there was Jews, there was Arabs, there was Persians. And the Jews made up roughly about one-seventh of the population of Antioch. And they were able to have their own freedoms. They had their own religious freedoms. In fact, some even said that there was walls that were built, and there was kind of the Jewish region, there was the Persian region. And so this city had walls within the city in order for people for, of different cultures to be able to live and to move and to function as a society, as people that had their own laws, they were able to have their own religious customs. And Antioch was, was this major trading city as well. It was a hub for the entire region with elaborate warehouses that had been built and infrastructures in order to, to be able to accommodate the, the trading that took place. It was a very wealthy city, it had lots of wealth. The main road in the heart of the city was approximately four miles long and it was paved entirely in marble. I mean, it, I mean it, was, it was an advanced city. It was one of the first cities. It was the first city that had its own version of streetlights, so it would be lit up at night. It was just this amazing, amazing city. But it was also a very evil city. There was much evil that went on. In fact, an ancient Roman writer by the name of Juvenal wrote that the Orontes River, which flows right through Antioch, he made this statement that, the, that this river spilled its garbage into the Tiber, which basically what he was meaning by this is that Antioch polluted Rome. And that we know from history that Rome was a very rotten, evil, vile city. But, but this writer wrote that they actually got their evilness and their corruption from even a more evil city, that being Antioch. And one of the things that, that has been discovered and something that is true in history that they have found about Antioch, it was also filled with many bathhouses and brothels and cultic and religious prostitution. In fact, Antioch was known for its worship of the goddess Daphne, the lover of Apollo from Greek mythology. And uh, I don't know how many of you are students of Greek mythology. I could not stand that when I was in school. And so I, I was able to come across this, this this past week, and, and her temple stood, the temple of Daphne uh, was outside the city in a beautiful 10 square acre garden, and there, day and night, men from Antioch would reenact the famous pursuit of Apollo and Daphne using religious prostitutes. It was a vile, evil, immoral city. It was in this unlikely place, though, that a strong and a vibrant church would emerge and it would become the central sending point, the headquarters for the Apostle Paul and his missionary endeavors. And it had a long history of faithful believers of preaching in that city, even though it was a very evil place. But that is the way that our God works. Our God works and shows up in the most unlikely of places. He does. See that through history. You see it in the word of God. And so we have believers from Jerusalem who were facing this persecution, and they were spreading out. Some of them went to Antioch, and they shared the gospel. But as it says in verse 19, they just basically stuck with Jews. They didn't tell anyone else. You know, it's interesting as I've been looking at the word of God and as you take and you look at your own life through the lens of the word of God, I think of six years ago when we moved to Kelowna. 
and I went on a bike ride just up behind our, our subdivision, and it was approximately here in this area, and I was overlooking the city, and, and, and it was within a week that we moved, and I was figuring out these new bike trails in this burnt-out area in, in Upper Mission, and as, we were, as I stopped and I looked over the city and saw the beauty and different things, there was also great confusion, and I was thinking, God, why did you bring us here? God, why, why, why did we come here? This makes no sense. Life was good where we had it. We had a new house. We had a good church. And, and it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. A prairie redneck boy who spent his life in Saskatchewan and Alberta and life was good. Coming to Kelowna where in, in being here for a week, week, week and a half or so, seeing all of these churches and just thinking, why in the world are we even here? What difference can, can I be a part of here in this city? And within those first few weeks, we were just kind of also impacted by the wealth and the materialism and the consumerism and the entitlement of this region uh, that are so prevalent. The, the party atmosphere, it was in the month of, month of August that we're, we were here and you, and you just see the sensuality. And, and I remember just, just looking over the city and just thinking, why are we even here? And there was a strong sense from the Lord as he spoke these words into my spirit and it was just so clear. He says, Meldon, you're here to preach the word of God. You are here to preach Jesus, to preach the cross. And you are to call the pagan, hedonistic, lost person in this city to Jesus Christ to the foot of the cross. But you're also to preach to that person who's been sitting in church for years, even decades, and they've grown cold. Or maybe they're not even truly saved. And you call them to the foot of the cross. And there they will find life. And there there will be a solid base by which a church can, can function and thrive and, and experience God's glory in. And I was like, okay, that seems to make sense. And as I was riding off, there was also a strong sense that it was like in Meldon, if it can happen here, it will spread. That God will do a work because this is tough ground for the gospel. We have so many gods. We have just so much that to me, if you come to discover harvest or as we used to call a party with the pastor, I liken it to the book of Ecclesiastes where you can do almost anything under the sun and you can enjoy the summertime. You can enjoy the winter. We have so many things that, that compete against the one thing that we should not have competing in our lives. And somewhere God fits into the little package and, and church becomes a check mark and something we don't want to sacrifice or give too much of our, our, our lives to because we've got a life to live. And I can't help but wonder as I had no idea of the path that God would have us on within our first few weeks of being here in Kelowna. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing that God is wanting to do a work. Little did I know that as I was to call the pagan, hedonistic, unsaved person to the cross, as well as the church-going person to the foot of the cross, that he was also saying, Melvin, you need to be there too. You need to be broken. You need to be surrendered. You need to allow my power to be great through you. And I honestly believe with all my heart in this passage here, folks, today, that Kelowna, the Okanagan region, could become a sending base 
for church plants in Western Canada and around the world. I'm praying that it does. I'm praying that it does. I see where it could happen, but it won't happen automatically. It will come on the shoulders of people ready and willing to do whatever it takes. This is tough ground for the gospel, but tough ground can be softened, and it's softened through the word of God and what we're going to be talking about here today. God uses unlikely places. Who would have ever thought that he would use a place like Antioch? And he uses unlikely people. Let's continue to read here in verse 20, and it says, but there were some of them, and so he's talking about some who were scattered, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So in due course, we don't know the timing in all of this, but, but as we, we start to see it, this is somewhere down the road that you have, I mean, and this is the crazy part. You have men from, from Cyprus. If we can go back to that last map and put that up there. So you have men from Cyprus, and, uh, which is a little island in the Mediterranean. You'll see it there kind of in between Antioch. You see that, that one island, and you see the word Cyprus. It's a little town in the Mediterranean. But then you have um, the other area of Cyrene, which is south of Jerusalem over towards the area of, of North Africa today. And so you have men from that island and from south of Jerusalem heading up to Antioch. How they got there? They weren't able to send a text message, hey, let's head up to Antioch. I don't know how they got there, but somehow they hooked up these, these individuals. They, they go to Antioch and they start preaching the word of God. Who are these men? Who are these preachers? And they're not preaching the word of God to other Jews. They're preaching to Gentiles. And what happens? The Gentiles get saved. We have no clue who these individuals are. The Bible doesn't tell us. They were obviously individuals that were not preoccupied with making a name for themselves, but rather making a name for Christ and proclaiming Christ. And I love this kind of faceless, nameless commitment to Christ. We'll find out in heaven. It'll be interesting to find out who these individuals were and how they got together and how they ended up in Antioch, but they were there preaching Jesus to Gentiles. But here's something we do know about them. Take a look, verse 21. And it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. This phrase is very interesting, folks, because this phrase tells us it means that the hand of the Lord was with them. The power and the blessing of the Lord was upon them. These nameless individuals, laymen, not professionally trained, have the power and the blessing of God to go in and to proclaim the gospel and to see people get saved. So how does one become a person of power? And experiencing the blessing of God. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9. Amazing verse here. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. 
God is looking to fully support hearts that are fully supported, dedicated, devoted to him. He's walking around the earth. He's walking around. He's looking at individuals. He's looking at their heart. And they're thinking, how's, how's this person's heart? Are they devoted? Are they fully devoted? Are they partially devoted? If they're fully devoted, you get his power. You get his presence. You get his blessing. And so he's looking. His eyes are running to and fro. He's looking and saying, who's faithful? Who's devoted? Who's devoted? Who are fully devoted to him? And he says, that is a life I can strongly support. You know how the U.S. elections, you know, have that, that ad at the end, you know, I'm Donald Trump and I support this ad. Forget that. I don't know why they do it. It's some, some law or something that they have. But here is a law of God from the word of God. That when our hearts are devoted to him, we have his power and his blessing that is available. That is an amazing, amazing truth. And these gentlemen had this. These men, it wasn't just about speaking the right words, but these men had devoted hearts. What were they devoted to? They were devoted to the Lord. What's first in our life? What are we devoted? What are we really, like really devoted to? Our bank accounts? Our comfort, our own goals, our income, our studies, got to get good marks, our name, our reputation. Or are we devoted to him? Is it showing in our life, in our thinking, in our humility, in our obedience, in the mission that he's placed us on? These devoted, nameless men preached and people got saved. That's the power of God at work. And then look at this, the last part of 21. It says, and a great number who believe turned to the Lord. This is just the depth and the beauty of God's word. Folks, I encourage you to underline. There's some important words in here that, that speak volumes here. This is so important. It says, a great number believed. You know what? Today, many people believe in Jesus. Just as they preach, many people believed in Jesus. They're like, that makes sense. What they're talking about, that's good. How many people in Canada, how many people in this room say, yep, I believe in Jesus. I believe in this Christmas thing that he came to earth. I mean, archaeology and history and everything shows that it happened. Even the resurrection, I believe. And we can believe in this. We can even make a profession and say that we believe. We can even be baptized and we can believe. But look at what's the next part in there. These people believed and they turned to the Lord. You see, so many people believe in biblical Christianity. They believe in it all, and, and, and they even rearrange parts of their lives around it even, and yet never truly turn to the Lord. It's not just seeing Jesus for who he is, but it's having him as our Lord and as our Savior. You see, a great number when they believed and they turned, this means a confessing and a repenting heart. They embraced Jesus Christ, not just as my co-pilot. They embraced Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. Have you believed? Have you turned? It's turning away from sin, from our old ways. It's not, I want Jesus and I'm going to hold on to this. In, in a wedding ceremony, one of the things I enjoy in doing wedding ceremonies for, for, uh, for couples 
is this statement when you have a couple who's desiring to honor God and to, to live for him and, and are pursuing him and it's even showing in, in the purity of their dating relationship and, and, and there's a statement in there that, that they get charged with in the, in the marriage ceremony and it says, forsaking all others, meaning you're willing to forsake mommy. The groom is, is willing to forsake even mom because now you are going to be uniting with your wife. You are forsaking your friends. You are forsaking your old patterns, your old boyfriends or girlfriends, whatever that would be. It's forsaking all others and taking this person as your husband, taking this person as your bride. And it's saying no one else matters, obviously God, but on the face of this earth, you are it. This, you are the person that is, is for me. And that I will be for. And, and that is a beautiful part of the marriage ceremony. The same is true when we turn to Christ. It is forsaking our sin. It's loving Jesus more than anything else. And this is a struggle. And this is art. And this is where we need one another to, to walk with us in this. But there's so much just kind of consumer Christianity. Just that we have Jesus just as, as part of our lives. But these people believed and they turned. You see, so oftentimes we're like, well, I, 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 I have Jesus as my co-pilot. He's with me. No, he's not your co-pilot. He is the pilot. He is the Lord. He is the one that's determining things. Where we treat him like a genie in the bottle that, you know, I, I run to or I rub or, you know, I kind of give some attention to, you know, when I need help or, you know, when I'm feeling kind of bad or something like that. But sadly today, many of this, a lot of this kind of teaching is even happening within the pulpits today. That God is a means to our own ends. The only problem with that kind of teaching is the word of God. God wants to bless us. God desires to, to even take our dreams and our ambitions, but it all comes first and foremost with submitting ourselves to him and to him alone. And he's a good father. He wants to give to his children. But sometimes the things that we want and desire, they're going to be terrible. They're going to be dangerous for us. And, we, and he's like, I'm, he redirects us a different way. Have we and are we turning away from sin? turning away from the old life and passionately pursuing Christ. You see, Jesus even said his word hasn't changed. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's, that's what it means to not only believe, but to turn. That's radical thinking. That's radical action. And unless we've done that, we're not saved. We don't know him as our Lord and our Savior. There are many people who have made a profession of faith, but don't have a possession of Christ in their lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul, at the, near the end of 2 Corinthians, in, in, verse 13, or in chapter 13, after he's written what, almost 30 chapters to the Corinthian church, he says to them, he says, examine your life. Keep examining your heart. Have you believed and have you turned to Jesus? We sing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. And oftentimes the world looks really distracting, doesn't it? But it's, we turn and, and I have decided to follow him. Or we sing, 
that song, I Surrender All, when really maybe we should sing, I surrender almost everything. I surrender only the things I want to. But Jesus said, he said, whoever wants to come after me to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Have you done that? It's not just a profession of faith, it's the possession of faith. And so we see these individuals, these people in Antioch, these Gentiles, they believe in Jesus and they turn. They turn to him. They turn away from the other stuff. The second thing is that we see that a transformed church, transformed lives happens in unlikely places with unlikely people. But secondly, it matures through exhortation and the preaching, teaching, and the study of God's word. Verse 22, it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas, love him. Barnabas, great guy. I mean... You just can't help but to love a guy like this. And, and we see him continually popping up. More of a behind-the-scenes guy, but boy, was he a main player. We read about him, first of all, in Acts chapter 4. He sells some property, and, and he gives it, he presents it to the apostles and say, here, divide it up. Use it to, to people who are in need. He was a generous man. He was ready to make sacrifices, selling property and, and, and doing that because people had needs. So we see there's a generosity about him. He, he's, he's, his name means son of encouragement, and boy, did he ever grow into that name. It was amazing how, how he did that. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus gets miraculously converted and everyone's, is this for real or is he just playing with us? Is he going to try? Barnabas, you go check him out. You go see, you know, if he's the real deal. Barnabas goes, he checks him out and he's like, he's the real deal, guys. And he presents him to the church and he's like, Barnabas approved. You know, and so, so we see this guy who's willing to do whatever needs to be done. He, he's a guy who sees the positive in people. He sees the possibility. He's a man of faith we see here. He's willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to shoulder the load for the gospel. And so he's the perfect choice for the disciples, for the apostles in Jerusalem. They're hearing, what? What's going on in Antioch? Barnabas. I'm so glad he didn't sit around and say, you know what? I've already done my, you know, I've, I need to go back and make some money because I sold some property and I got to work on my investments to make sure my portfolio's good. Or, you know, like, hey, I, I did the whole deal with the Apostle Paul, you know, or with Saul, you know, and, and everything. Like, I need a break. Isn't there? No. They asked, he went. What obedience. He saw that there was a job to be done. He was asked to do it. There's no question. He's like, he goes. He was willing to give up the, the comfy confines of the Jerusalem church where they had great teaching. I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was perhaps even teaching his kids in the Sunday school class. I don't know. It was a great place to be. So he travels 500 kilometers leaving his friends and family. But we see he was a man of faith. He was a man of sacrifice, ready to do what needed to be done. And what did he find? It was amazing what he found. He found the grace of God. He saw that God was at work with these Gentiles. He wasn't cynical and judgmental and saying, well, we'll just see if it sticks. You know, we'll see if, you know, it's, it, it's going to get tough. 
It's going to get tough for these. No, he's in there. He's rolling up his sleeves and he's like, I'm going to encourage these people to step because it's going to get tough. And what does he do? He encourages them to, to hold on with steadfast hope and perseverance and purpose to keep on going. Oh, this Barnabas is a sweet man. He exhorted them. We see here in the passage that word means he emphatically urged them to stay faithful, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Hold on to Christ. No drifting. No drifting. Come on. No, 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 no wavering. Come on. No, you got to keep going. It's going to get hard. You're going to have people get upset. They're not going to understand you. How does that old hymn go? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he's like, no, no, no. It's not going to happen to you. Come on. Let's keep going. He's not going to see that they get caught up in the cultural drift that kind of starts getting them sucked back into their old life. No way. He's like, come on, let's keep going. You see, the Christian life is, is not just about the start. It's about the finish. There's many great starts, but there, there's a lot, of, a lot who don't finish. And I heard this statement this week. You may want to write it down. Get ready to write it. It says, the faith you have tomorrow will be a product of the attention you pay today. The faith that you have tomorrow will be a product of the attention you pay today. It's going to be hard. It's going to take commitment. And as a result of all of this, what happened from, from Barnabas coming in there? Did he just encourage the other believers and just kind of have these little holy huddles? No, it says more people got saved. He's like, oh, great. What am I going to do now? More and more people getting saved. I'm so thankful for the Barnabases in my life and for the Barbaras, the Barnabas and the Barbaras, men and women who have encouraged me, exhorted me to remain steadfast. through their loving actions, and at times through their strong words. At times I disagreed with their strong words. My internal lawyer came out. Whether it be parents or grandparents or Sunday school teachers or youth leaders or pastors or elders or friends or dear saints, the list goes on, who have been your Barnabases, who have been your Barbaras in your life. Are you a Barnabas? Are you a Barbara? You ought to be. You ought to be. People get saved. Churches get planted. The gospel spreads on the shoulders of Barnabas. I think back to Harvest Kelowna, to our early, early days, and even currently these days, this church has been built and will continue to be built on the shoulders of faithful Barnabases and Barbaras. People willing to do whatever it takes and sometimes there's no credit, there's no glory, there's no identification in this. I think of one in particular couple who four years ago when Charlotte and I were at a place of real discouragement in our lives and we didn't know what the future would hold for us and if we should stay in the city or just what. And, and this couple invited our family out to Dairy Queen on a beautiful summer evening. And I remember this man turning to me and, and he says, so what's next? What are we doing? And I'm like, I have no clue. I have no clue if we're sticking around here. I have no clue what we're doing. And he says to me, he says, whatever it is, whatever he tells you to do, we're there. And he's been a man faithful to that truth. 
he and his wife, behind the scenes, much of it, people of encouragement. He's in his early 70s. He's walking with a limp today because he did something on a ladder that he shouldn't have done. He's here at 6.45 and his wife isn't far behind on a Sunday morning. Oftentimes, one of them will scoot off to save on if there's not enough food that they figure on the table. They're getting set up and, and, and that so that the lobby is being transformed to the way the theater people would like it while the service is going on. He's leading a team of people to help in that. And I could repeat story after story, meeting with this young couple that just brought down our age to, of our core group in its early stages just dramatically because they were like this couple in the 20s and like, oh! a couple in their 20s. And, and, and I remember talking with them and saying, hey, here's what we want you to do when, when it comes time to launch this thing. <clears throat> and both of the jobs we asked them to do were biting off probably more than what they thought they could chew. And I remember Pam saying when it came to Harvest Kids, <clears throat> she said, well, I didn't see that one coming. She honestly did. I'm like, like, were you not thinking? You were the youngest one. Like, of course you should be with children. You know, and, and, and who else? You know, and, and she said, hey, if that's what needs to be done, I'm there. That's where she is today, and they're faithfully serving, and her husband's serving as well. And I could just continue to go on about, about people who invent things for us to be able to, to save money and to do different things. We have our own modern-day MacGyver who can, can do this. And, and, and God uses unlikely places with very unlikely people, and he has these Barnabases in our mix. And we're all to be a Barnabas. We're all to be a Barney and, or, or a Barbara. And so... We continue on, and this is how the gospel grows. It grows on the shoulders of people like this. And, and, and all along the way, we see that, that Barnabas is encouraging people, and more people coming to the faith. And so what does he do? He realizes his limitations, too. He's like, help, time out. I don't know what to do. There's all these people getting saved, and, 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 and I'm not gifted. I'm not trained to, to be able to help these people in the way that I ought. And so verse 25, he says, so Barnabas sent went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Barnabas knew there was one guy. As he's seen this need, he's like, I can't do this. He's like, there's one guy who could totally help us out here in a major way, Saul. Where's Saul? He's been hiding out. Well, not hiding out. He's been active more than likely, and, and scripture and history seems to prove that. But, but he's in Tarsus kind of like for possibly up to seven years after he gets saved. He's really doing nothing that we know of anyways, but God's preparing him for the right place at the right time, and God's timing is always perfect. Here is Saul, who has a deep knowledge of the scriptures, familiar with Gentile culture. He's been raised in Tarsus, so we understand, and Tarsus is just a little further north, not all that far. And so, here he is. He comes in with Paul, or, or with Barnabas, and we see these two teaching. And helping these people. These new believers needed exhortation, meaning encouragement, strong encouragement, but they also needed strong and serious preaching and teaching of the word of God. That's how we're discipled, to the word of God. Not just by showing up, but by getting into the word of God. And for the next year, Paul and Barnabas teach the word of God. It wasn't just, hey, yeah, come this Sunday. We're going to preach, you know, we're going to preach through, you know, th this passage. We're going to talk about this. We're going to train in this. It was, it was more than that. These people were committed to wanting to learn the word of God. And so they were, they were meeting continually, even throughout the week. They're training these guys up, these, th these men, these women, these families, just teaching the word of God. And so they were teaching them so they would grow spiritually. 
You see, sadly, though, today we've become so satisfied with just the crumbs of the word of God. The majority of people in churches, we don't know the word of God because we're not reading, we're not studying the word of God. Our devotional lives, yes, devotional lives are important, but devotional lives need to consist of more than just taking a verse and then reading something else. Those are the crumbs of the word of God. I mean, crumbs are good, don't get me wrong. Crumbs are good, but we need the bread. And the word of God is referred to as milk, as bread and meat. And we need all of that in order to grow us to understand the word of God. You cannot fully, some churches are saying, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't preach the Old Testament. We don't need that. You can't fully understand the finished work of Christ and the sacrifice of what he did on the cross unless you have a growing and a wonderful understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system and to see what they had to go through in order to have their sins forgiven and atoned for. And as you grow in your understanding, you're like, oh, the sacrifice of Jesus is even that much more amazing than I ever thought. We need the whole Bible. Heard this statement this week, the whole Bible for the whole person, for the whole world. And we need to be people who are in the word of God, not just getting our daily crumb but studying it, studying it with others, availing ourselves, making it a priority in our lives, making God's house and God's people and small groups a priority because we're, we're in the word of God. We're studying the word of God. And that's something we're rather amped up about at Harvest is, is wanting to be a church of the word of God and not just to tickle ears or just to, you know, seven steps to this or, or you know, three ways to help you, you know, in your own personal business and build your, your, your prosperity. No, that, that's not what God calls the word of God for us as churches to do. We're to be proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And there are many things that we see from God's word that are so applicable in how we run a business and how we live our lives. But it comes to studying the word of God, the whole Bible, to the whole person, to reach the whole world. That's why we want, want to be people growing, growing more and more in the word of God. And look at the last part of verse 25. And it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Probably was meant in a derogatory kind of way, in a mocking kind of a way. But what does the word Christian mean? One way to translate it is little Christ. Look at these little Christ walking around here. These little Jesus, little Jesus freaks. What's going on here? They, they started noticing that these people, that they were living their lives. Christ was so much a part of these new believers' lives and their lips in such a way, and they lived their lives in such a way that they were reflecting the character of Jesus. People started calling them little Christ. Someone who belongs to Christ. When people look at me, when they look at you, when they look at us, would they say, hey, that's a little Christ walking around. That's a Jesus Someone who is reflecting the love of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the ready to speak the truth and love of Jesus, who are acting like Jesus, not perfectly, but progressing in this. Are people seeing that there's a progression, a change, that Jesus is changing you, that sanctification is happening in your life, that you're growing in your love for him, and therefore, as you grow in your love for him, you can't help but spill it out into a love for others. You see, this transformation happened through the exhortation of a guy like Barnabas, through encouragement, and through the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God. And that is what will transform lives and marriages today within Kelowna and the Okanagan region. 
encouragement. I, I, I trust that this would be the most encouraging and loving place. One of the things, that eat, it's all about discipleship. Everything we do, when, when people walk in the door, it's not about just making them feel welcome and, and, and being hospitable as a church. No, it's about discipleship. It's understanding that we want to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. And how has Christ welcomed us? With open arms, with get over here. Come on in. Everyone's invited. That's what our welcome ministry is about. Whether it's in the parking lot, at the door, before the service, after the service, even if you have a red shirt on, even if you don't have a red shirt on. It's all about discipleship, seeing people grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, loving him more, becoming little Christ's. Oh, I pray that, that, that this next week, that, that this region would just be filled in a greater way with little Christ's who are on mission for him. And then thirdly, we see God plants and grows healthy, mature churches with transformed people that can impact the world. And it happens by moving out in sacrificial service. This happens as we move out in sacrificial service. Verse 27, it says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, could use a name change, stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in, in Judea, in Judah. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So these new Christians are so transformed after a year of encouragement and teaching and, and understanding the word of God in a greater way. Their hearts are so transformed. They hear that there's a need and they're like, we're there. How much do they need? Write the check. Let's do it. How much can you give? How much can you give? Where are you at? Where are things at for you right now? And, and this is going to hurt. This is going to be a sacrifice. I mean, God's on the move when God frees up people and their resources. It's just one of those, those things that, that you see that, that will go hand in hand. When God's on the move, we become sacrificial in our giving, in our going. They were not only willing to give up of their resources financially, they were also willing to give up of their people. No, Barnabas, Saul, say, we'll send some other runners. We'll send some. No, we're going to send it with, with, with Paul and Barnabas. Seems very strange, but there's a freedom. Oh, they come back and boy, do they ever get encouraged and they get sent out again. You know the gospel is going deep when generosity flows. When you think about it, these Gentile people who've hated and despised Jews and the Jews have hated and despised these Gentiles for centuries are now hearing, oh, they're going to be in need. There's a famine going on. It's not going to affect us quite the same. We're off. We're off you know, a little better off financially, let's help them out. This is an amazing transformation that takes place. When we are willing to separate with our money to give to the Lord's work and sacrificial gifts where it's going to hurt, we're saying that God is more important. It's showing that the gospel, we're understanding the poverty of the gospel. As we are looking at 2 Corinthians 8, 9 at our stop, drop, and prayer this morning, prayer time that, that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. He left the riches of heaven and came to this earth. But what was the end result? The salvation. Salvation full and free to all who ask. And as we are generous, God does amazing things. 
This resulted in sacrificial giving and sacrificial service. They were outward thinking kind of people and a dynamic, generous church was planted there in Antioch. And later on, we're going to see as you continue reading through the book of Acts, Antioch becomes the sending base for the apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. Church planting ended up taking place because of this church, a missionary movement and the gospel finally got to Rome and it started here in this unlikely city with unlikely people and it started to spread like a wildfire. God can do it today, but the gospel needs to move out from just something we've received. If we have professed Christ and we possess Christ in our lives, it just doesn't stay there, it moves out. Tim Keller, his wife, uh, one day was talking to him and, and uh, they were discussing at the apartment that they live in, one of those you know, candy machines or pop machines, you put the money in and uh, you, know, you push the button and, and something falls out. Have you ever used one of those? And, and how many of you have ever had that happen where um, you put the money in and you hear something start to drop but somewhere it gets kind of caught in the way and, or, or caught and it doesn't come down, what do you do? What do you do? You smack it, you shake it. I remember in college, truth be known, seeing one of those things going over back and forth. Guys were playing this game with it. Actually, they got a little more than what they should have. Uh, that was Bible college. And, um, you know, just you know, true confession, I watched. And, uh, but you know what, sometimes, and, and from that, they kind of laughed and said, sometimes we as Christians, we need a smack. We need the same kind of thing because the gospel goes in but it gets stuck and you need to kind of smack it in order to get it out. In love, consider yourself smacked today. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, for history coming alive in your word. And God, one simple prayer. Would you make it so here in this city, in this region, with this unlikely group of people who've gathered here today. May we be examining our hearts to see if we truly, are we just professing a faith or have we possessed you? Are we turning away? Are we surrendering everything to you? If not, may we do that today. May we come to know you as Savior and as Lord, not just as a cultural believer, but as someone who truly, truly possesses the Holy Spirit within their life through surrender, through making Jesus Christ Lord. And from that, Lord, I pray that the gospel wouldn't just get stuck in us, but it, we would move out. And we would see people get, the lost get saved, saved people matured, and matured people moving out along with us to reach others. And to see your gospel, to see your truth spread through this region, this nation, and around this world love to be a part of it, Lord. And I pray that my friends here would be too, and I know that they, there's so many that are, are, are together in this, and I thank you for the Barnabases. And God, I pray that through the teaching of your word and through the encouragement of the brothers and sisters, we would be a transformed church, transformed lives, ready to do whatever it takes. Let's stand together in worship.